Welcome back everyone to HIPSA's Health Policy Checkup. My name is Ashita Shaw. And my name is Nia Allen, and we are undergraduate students at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and members of the HIPSA Education Committee, and we'll be your hosts today. In today's episode, we will discuss Anton's Avicenia's beginnings in public health and will later go into a discussion about gaps in equity and efficiency within the behavioral health care system. Our guest today is a decision scientist and health policy researcher who studies how efficiency and equity in health can be improved. Anton is an assistant professor of health outcomes at the University of Texas College of Pharmacy. His main area of research involves understanding the health, economic, and social consequences of alcohol misuse and evaluating treatments, pharmacotherapies, and population-level interventions that can reduce the burden of alcohol use. Anton received his Ph.D. in Health Sciences Organization and Policy from the University of Michigan, where he was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Research Scholar. He received his undergraduate and graduate training in public health from the University of California, San Francisco, and Santa Clara University. So in your bio, you have multiple degrees, like ranging from Santa Clara University in California, University of Michigan. Um, and if I'm correct, you're currently working at the University of Texas as an assistant professor. So kind of like what led to those different moves and like what are some of the highlights you can remember from your like undergrad experience, even grad experience? Yeah, great question. Um I don't want to start from the very beginning, but let's just, yeah. <laughs> I'll just say that I, you know, I, like many of us in public health, started out pre-med. So um, I actually did my first years of college back home in the Philippines. I was born and raised there, um, solidly pre-med. And then I moved to the United States with my family in 2010. And then, you know, enrolled in kind of the same program pre-med. But I think in the course of taking undergraduate public health classes, I got introduced to really transformative ideas around, you know, the social determinants of health, health inequities and health equity, um, the, the potential of health policy to shape population health. All these were just incredible, incredibly powerful ideas, especially for a, a young person like me back then. Um, and so I, you know, I, Remained interested, um, but still pursued, um, I guess, my dreams of becoming a doctor. A couple of things I think changed my my outlook. I did some, you know, shadowing, you know, like we all do. And I actually worked as an SDI counselor and HIV counselor in San Francisco, also on a voluntary basis. And I just realized I, I don't think I had the energy and the heart to be a clinician, somebody who really took care of patients, although I remained interested in health. And so it, it, it was kind of a natural move for me to pursue just, you know, straight up public health. And um, this was, you know, two years out of my uh, undergrad now. And um, I had also spent some time in the California Department of Public Health about a year, and then also in the County Mental Health Department at Santa Clara. Um, yes, I was juggling two jobs, two part-time jobs out of undergrad. And I also found that work really fascinating and, and really interesting. So I decided I wanted to get a master's and see where that could take me. And so I got a master's in global health at UCSF. So at this time I was still living in the Bay Area, which is where my family is from. 
And global health was a deliberate choice because I, again, I was born and raised in the Philippines, clearly have still very deep roots back there and, and just largely in kind of settings where I know the greatest needs are in some ways, you know, and um, and so the global health track made sense. I did that. That was a one-year program. And then I ended up working for UCSF after that for about three years. And at UCSF, I was in the Malaria Elimination Initiative. It's kind of a, it was a, a largely Gates-funded uh, program where we were really helping countries um, with very low malaria burdens to try to eliminate malaria, uh, to try to get to zero, as you would like to, to, to say. And my role then was as a research analyst, it was kind of a really nice job out of grad school. I get, I got to travel the world really. Um, so selfishly, that was kind of a, a big draw. Um, but personally, it, it meant a lot because I got to work in the Philippines for quite some time and really explore the field of health economics and um, decision science. I didn't know it back then, but I was so drawn to the methods at this point of like, trying to understand how do we help decision-making? You know, I worked with a couple of national malaria control programs, Sri Lanka, the Philippines, Indonesia for some time, Rwanda. And, you know, they're all hardworking folks behind those programs, but sometimes at the decision-making level, you could see that they didn't necessarily have the right tools to, you know, decide whether Know, this many nets should be distributed this year or how much you know, test kits should be distributed in this district versus another. And these were serious questions. I mean, their, their resources were limited. They wanted to make the biggest impact. Malaria still is uh, a significant cause of uh, death and disability in, in the world, especially among kids. And I found that, you know, these set of methods I was using, cost-effectiveness analysis, simulation modeling, really could provide at least some guidance to, to for these folks, for these decision makers who are really trying their best. And then that brought me to Michigan. Um, I was looking at decision science programs, got accepted here, met my advisors. I'll, I'll just give a shout out to David Hutton and Lisa Prosser, who are just really fast, um, really wonderful, thoughtful, kind people who uh, really took an interest in what I was doing or how I was thinking about things. And yeah. Um, last thing I'll say is I just graduated my PhD um, at Michigan. I already missed the institution. It's really a special place. So whoever's listening to this, I you know encourage you to make the most out, out of your time at, at Michigan. But I, I've also found a very unique um, role here at Texas. Um, I'm in the College of Pharmacy now. So I teach mainly pharmacy students, although I also supervise and teach PhD students here. But it's a... It, they do a lot of really public health-esque work, um, and I still continue to do some of the cost-effectiveness analysis that I've done, and yeah, really happy where I, I've been and looking forward to kind of building a career here at UT. That's super interesting to hear about. Okay, so the next question um, is about public health more broadly. As a field, it's been around for centuries and has very colonial and paternalistic roots. Since the pandemic, we've seen more people take an interest in public health and more students want to pursue it. Um, did you think your career would ever get as prominent as it is now? And where do you see the field of public health headed in the near future? In some ways, I think 
I really appreciated my public health training, especially as an undergrad, because I, so I went to Santa Clara University, which is, you know, a Catholic Jesuit school. So it's a very specific type of, you know, Catholic tradition. Uh, I grew up Catholic, but I'm no, no longer Catholic. But I really appreciate their approach to the public health education and really seeing, emphasizing that public health is social justice in action. So I think I started off with really good foundations about what public health should mean versus what it meant when it started. Certainly, we talked about, you know, the roots of public health. Like you said, it's there's very strong colonial um, roots of public health practice around the world, uh, but even in, in the Philippines where I'm from, um, you know, it was a, a tool to kind of modernize, you know, certain groups of people, so to speak. And, um, you know, this is why we used, we used the word hygiene quite a bit in, in some of our, our interventions. And many of our institutions are still called uh, tropical hygiene or mental hygiene. It really was this idea of like, they're, you know, we have to clean up these these places. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because I think the field is really committed to uh, improving health, not just overall health or health outcomes, but also the distribution of health, like who gets this health benefit. Um, so that was pretty clear to me from the beginning. So I think that was something I've, I've always appreciated, something I brought with me throughout the work that I've done. And you're right that it's certain parts of global health are finally changing. I think it took them a while. I, you know, even the work within global health that I've done, I, you know, some of it I look back and I, and I realized that some of it may have not been in the best interest of the countries we were working in and work and the people we were working with and for, but I'm glad it's changing. I, I certainly learned a lot myself. And, you know, even for me, I, I look back and I worked in the Philippines when I was in malaria um, at UCSF and, you know, I look like them. I look, I'm, I speak like them. I'm Filipino through and through, but I, I knew even just with the fact that I got trained in the U.S. representing a U.S. institution that coming in there was brought a very different set of symbols and, and meaning. And, and so I'm a little more aware of that now and, you know, make sure that the first thing I do when working with folks um, in any setting really is to, to be a listening partner first, uh, not someone who kind of imposes ideas on, on folks. Um, so the truth is, I, you know, they're the experts, you know, I'm the one coming in and, and they're the ones who live in that place and, and know the ins and outs of the country and the different populations. So uh, I'm glad we're seeing, you know, that global health transformation now. Um, it took a while, but I think, I don't think we're going back. It would be hard to, to go back to a a paternalistic, really neo-colonial system. Now that we've seen where we should be going, I don't think anyone's gonna allow us to go back to that. So those are really cool changes to see. Um, and of course, there's parallels here in the U.S. as well. It really does take some some investment in getting to know the people who are going to be affected by the intervention, but also really understanding what they want. I think that's those are things we're seeing now in in public health and even in the space I live in. So decision science, I mean, there's all this talk about when we're building our models that did we really talk to people about what, what we want to model or what they, what matters to them. So there's, there's that. So that that's really refreshing. And, and I think a really welcome change. Yeah. Thank you. So we're just going to shift the focus a little bit to some of your research on behavioral health. And um, after looking at your profile, I just wanted to know, like, what kind of led to your interest and in, like your main focus on behavioral health as a decision scientist? Yeah, my 
my history shows I've, I've been interested in many things um, and I still am. Um, so I started my career really in SDI and HIV prevention, I would say. You know, I was a counselor in San Francisco, really on the streets, working with people who needed services. And then I did kind of the policy work at the California Department of Public Health in the STD control branch. And then I worked in malaria, and that was also really interesting and important and fascinating. And I thought I was going to continue in that space, malaria, infectious disease. And then I got to Michigan, and then there, you know, I just realized there's a whole lot of need in very different areas. So I ended up doing quite a bit of stuff. Eventually, I, I met Jessica Mellinger, who's a hepatologist and a health services researcher at Michigan Medicine, who's also a, an advisor and mentor of mine. And she approached my advisor and said, you know, I want to do this cost-effectiveness study. And I was like, okay, we can do it. But that was the first time I actually really saw the data around alcohol misuse in the United States, really showing that, and this was pre-COVID, so all these trends were before the pandemic, but drinking rates in the United States were at the highest they've been, at least based on the surveys, that the national nationally representative surveys that we do. And so alcohol use was high, alcohol misuse was high, and alcohol use disorder was also high. So, and it, it, and it rose most uh, significantly in populations that didn't used to drink as much before. So these are um, women, older adults, uh, some young adults, and then uh, people with low socioeconomic status. I was, and I've just been kind of really focused on that, that data ever since. I've found that there's not a lot of work happening in alcohol, unfortunately, because I think it is, you know, in many ways, the most widely used substance in the world. Um, there's a lot of cultural acceptance around it, but very little education around it's, it's all of its harms. Um, and I do think there's a harm reduction message here. Um, I don't think any, everyone should stop drinking. I think there are cultural and personal reasons that people drink. I think the, the big takeaway is do people fully know the risk and can they tailor their consumption of alcohol based on the risks they're willing to, to tolerate? Um, and, you know, it's, I don't, the answer is basically, uh, I don't think people know. Like, for example, the work I'm doing now, and I'll, I'll um, answer the next question, but I'm looking at the links between alcohol and cancer now. And, um, you know, there's very little awareness that alcohol is a carcinogen and has been causally linked to at least eight cancers, um, many of which are some of the most common ones, including breast in women, colorectal, and um, cancers of kind of the head and neck. And so, and, and our surveys kind of reveal that no one really knows this. If you ask people, is alcohol carcinogen? People mostly say no, or they don't know. So there's clearly some space around around education and in, in that area. So so from alcohol, just I'm also bridging out to other substance use uh, disorders and severe mental illness. I think uh, as I've really dug into these areas, I've found there's there's significant unmet need on the research side, but also on the intervention side. And the one thing that I'm really passionate about is I think the methods that I use really help bridge the gap between research and, and practice, so what we know and what we do. Um, so very focused on interventions, scaling up interventions, asking if they're cost effective and worth the money that they, they require. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So how do you think scientists should be like more culturally conscious when developing like certain interventions or like solutions to alcohol misuse or, you know, other substances? Like you brought up the whole cultural aspect, like 
um, for some communities, like this has been around for so long. These are traditions that are tied to a lot of it. So yeah, how do you kind of address that? Yeah, um, really important point. I think I'm still trying to discover that also. Certainly, I think, you know, the going back to the earlier discussion we had, I think the paternalistic model of public health just can't um, be the dominant frame here. So we can't just say, oh, we have to reduce, you know, alcohol use in, in whatever way we think is the most effective. I think what needs to happen is really talking to the communities that uh, these interventions are going to impact um, and, and understanding what are the drivers of heavy use. I think that's, you know, that's the, again, the big, the big message here is there's, there's a harm reduction approach that um, you can drink, but um, you know, there's, there are thresholds and limits that could really cause some serious harm. So how, what are the determinants of those in, in your community and how can we address those? And, um, you know, some of it is driven by commercial interests. So we know that there's really heavy marketing in certain communities and that's driving some of the increases we're seeing. So uh, I don't want to discount the gender piece here. For example, you know, women's drinking rates have been really going up um, and catching up with men. So it used to be that men drank the most. Uh, women are catching up and we know why that is. It's a lot of it is marketing, you know, targeted marketing for women. You can go to a store now and just see, um, I don't know, feminized some of our packaging are and our messaging, you know, mommy wine Wednesdays or, you know, I mean, it's, it's a whole industry. And I think we also have to address that, that some of this practice or, you know, what ends up being, hopefully not culture becomes so ingrained and it was just demand that was driven by, by industry and commercial interests. So we kind of have to disentangle that too. But, I, but going back to the core of the question, yes, I, we have to talk to the people impacted by this, by our intervention. So for example, my dissertation looked at taxes for alcohol and we found that it is cost-effective. Taxes are effective in reducing consumption, but it also increases spending for alcohol among people who have very low incomes. And whether that's the approach you want to take, uh, it's unclear. We haven't really asked the communities. Maybe communities would rather reduce the number of stores or the hours that alcohol is sold, or maybe the variety of alcohol that's available. I mean, I don't think we've really talked to all the communities affected uh, before implementing these. So I'm hoping to bring that into my work as well. I think your point about commercial interest is super prevalent to public health with regards to the field's role in presenting the risks of alcohol and other substances, like even over-the-counter prescriptions to consumer populations. Commercial interests are putting decision-making in the hands of the consumer, and if public health is meant to bring awareness to the risk and give people the tools to navigate that decision, what do you think are some of the challenges with that? And then also, as a College of Pharmacy faculty at UT, how do you see your work playing into alleviating that burden of consumer education? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, I think I go back to some of the, you know, social determinants of health that we know really influence uh, decision-making and behavior in health. So I think, and, and this ties into also with some of the behavioral economics kind of um, literature and scholarship that's happened that we really can help people make the healthier choice. Uh, might not be what they prefer, but it could be the healthier choice by kind of really putting in some uh, 
making the making it easier first of all to make the healthier choice so by putting in kind of structures and systems and 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 building an environment where that's kind of the the norm and the default so you know in the alcohol space uh we haven't even been able to uh, really finish the 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 education piece of it all you know we i don't think there's a lot of awareness about the all the harms of alcohol um, you know, alcohol products are also the only one of the few consumer goods that you can buy in a store without required nutritional facts. Like, and it's very jarring that you know every ingredient in a gummy bear, but you wouldn't know every ingredient in your bottle of wine, including the amount of sugar. Um, and all the other kind of additives in in that, and that that's true for any alcoholic beverage. So again, going back to commercial interest, there's been a huge push by the alcohol beverage lobby to to have stricter, um, or I mean, stricter nutritional labeling, but just nutritional labeling at all. That's at par with all the other food items and beverages we buy at the grocery store. Um, so so that's there's the challenge still there around the education piece. But we also know that even with disinformation, not everyone's going to act on it. Um, and so what does that mean for um, um, the nudge, you know, for that conducive um, health advancing environment that we can, that we can create? I think um, there's certainly... Um, and again, we, we need to talk to the community members about this, but there's some, some exciting things going on around just like, in, I don't know if you see this as students, but there's there's a lot more um, acceptance of, of dry parties, of, of just like, you know, how, you know, having a social gathering without the need to, to consume alcohol. I think that's a, a welcome change. We're also seeing more low, alcohol beverages again from a harm reduction standpoint this could be a good thing we don't know i mean certainly there's some risk that people just consume around the same amount of alcohol with you know a, a hard seltzer that has one or two percent alcohol so i think again we we're still not sure about how to create those conditions to help people make good choices around alcohol i mean we we thought it was taxes and in some ways it still could be uh, we've seen some some pretty impressive results around sugar sweetened beverages in certain settings and taxes and alcohol was supposed to be kind of the next frontier for that but um we're, we're definitely worried about some of the inequities it could cause on, on the socioeconomic front so anyway um yeah nudges we're thinking about it still and just a few more questions we don't want to take up too much of your time okay yeah, yeah yeah more broadly like what do you um think are some of like the biggest burdens or even gaps within the health system regarding behavioral health care um or even its delivery gosh there's a couple i think i mean for the longest time um the resources devoted to behavioral health was not nearly as nearly close to what we were devoting to just physical health. And so a number of policies changed that. You probably heard of kind of, some of the mental health parity laws, which really forced um, payers to 
make sure that they're offering as much resources for mental and behavioral health as they were for, you know, health services uh, clinic for physical health. I think we could still do more in that space, um, especially since many of our mental and behavioral health issues um, require a lot, a, few, a lot more resources than, you know, a cold. A lot of that has to do, of course, with um, this persistent issue of stigma. I think um, people are very concerned and scared and, and apprehensive to seek care for what is a you know what are very common conditions from depression to anxiety to alcohol use disorder to you know other substance use disorders and when I was working in mental health way back when at the county of Santa Clara you know we used to tell our community members that your your brain your heart meaning by heart meaning your your feeling your emotions are just like any other organ in your body they need help sometimes you know you see a doctor for your pancreas and your kidneys why can't you see a doctor and seek care for your your mind and your well your emotional health um and sometimes that would break down some of the barriers around care seeking um but that's that's really kind of the message i think you know it, it is fascinating how how very differently we see that, you know, let's just give an example, um, the situation of someone with breast cancer versus somebody who has schizophrenia. I mean, the, the amount of the level of comfort that we have talking to these patients um, is very different between these two conditions. And I think stigma and, and some of our really negative cultural kind of um, beliefs about mental illness really do affect that today. So we have a lot to do there. And um, I think we also need to just innovate around treatments. Mm -hmm. uh, many of our conditions remain treatment resistant or refractory, as they're called in, in medicine, because our treatments either have stopped working, um, they're not as effective, uh, they're, not in fact, or not, they're not effective in specific groups of people. And so I think um, especially those with, you know, very high social needs. I'm thinking of people with, you know, experiencing homelessness and people with comorbid conditions. I mean, I think we really need just better treatments. Um, you know, one of the populations I'm interested in are people with PTSD and, they, you know, people who have treatment-resistant PTSD haven't seen a treatment in decades, a new treatment, uh, which is why there's some excitement around this psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy research that's coming out because it is has it has shown that it could reduce the symptoms of, of severe and chronic PTSD. But um, besides that, we haven't really seen anything. Um, and so there's, you know, speaking to commercial interests, I think industry could, could do more innovation around this space, of course, in partnership with academic folks and, and, and researchers in our, in our university. So hopefully we'll see more of that too. Yeah, definitely. I think that, again, that interdisciplinary approach from commercial interests and the public health system and the criminal justice system and like behavioral health system in general, like keeping that more holistic is something that can really help alleviate burden and especially just like destigmatize it across industries too. Yeah. Do you see like any promises with the delivery of telehealth? Just thinking of yeah. like individuals who like live in rural areas um, who aren't able to like go to like the nearest health center um, or to go to therapy and access those same resources as someone, you know, who's in a better position, both financially and um, geographically. So do you see any promises with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's been some, there's been some really encouraging evidence around the potential of telehealth, especially in the mental and behavioral space. Um, and, and really it's, 
mostly in the delivery of psychotherapy and behavioral interventions, right? So many of our mental health conditions still require um, medications and um, medication-assisted therapy. So, so those um, treatments still require either you know, some touch point with the healthcare system, um, whether in person or through some delivery service. But on this, yeah, on the psychotherapy front, behavioral interventions, yeah, telehealth really has the potential to to increase access to those services. Of course, um, as we've seen in during the pandemic, when things you know moved online and people were seeking care through, um, you know, these telehealth services, it it could lead to more inequities because of just the un embarrassingly unequal access to broadband, to uh, mobile phones, to the right devices for these types of appointments. And so that, you know, there's so much promise, but there's also so much risk if we move fully or at least most of these services on, on, these, on, on this type of format. So I think, you know, it's bringing back this idea of social determinants, right? I, I mean, how can we really get away from it? That even our, our brightest, most promising interventions can run into all the really deep-seated challenges that we haven't addressed. And so that, you know, that, that's just a concern. But I think generally, if people had access to an internet, a computer, a place where they can have privacy um, to speak to a provider, I think there's there's a lot of promise there. Um, and of course, I think. The other thing to point out is sometimes telehealth doesn't work for everyone and, and that an in-person appointment is still the most effective. Um, and so just being open to the possibility that for some groups of people that is still the appropriate standard of care, um, even though it might be more expensive than telehealth, uh, it might be the more effective one. So again, just want to bring back that, that idea of cost effectiveness. So Yeah, so you talked a lot about like, these gaps in equity and efficiency related to behavioral health care delivery. And you also talked about like the promising areas in telehealth and still like where that even falls short within healthcare delivery. And obviously one of like the main issues within our healthcare system is low value care. And so specifically within behavioral health services, how do you see low value behavioral health care being reformed in the coming years? And what, what do you see on the horizon for that? Yeah, you know, I actually know of very little, very few behavioral health interventions that are low value. And, it, and it's because untreated mental illness and, and behavioral um, health issues can really take a toll on individuals, families, society. And so anything that can make a difference on people's lives on, on those areas often intend to be really cost-effective or even cost-saving interventions. Um, so I'm going to attempt to answer this question by kind of flipping it a little bit. I think the low value care and mental and behavioral health are the lack of care in some ways are poor levels of, of engagement around these issues. So, you know, an example, again, going back to alcohol, only about 9%, I would say, some estimates were 6, 6 to 9%, let's say, of people with alcohol use disorder actually are engaged in treatment for AUD. That's terrible. That's abysmally low, and honestly, a, a clear failure of the healthcare system in some ways. Because there are many ways to treat AUD. We have really good medications, for example, to address AUD. 
Again, we have proven psychotherapy methods, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, even brief interventions with a clinician, one that lasts for 15 to 20 minutes. If you talk to someone about their drinking that they're concerned about, we know that that has a really huge impact on people's drinking uh, in the short and medium term. So the low, the low value service, the low value within mental and behavioral health for me is the poor adoption of these interventions that have existed for a long time, but are not being adopted. I think that's a, and that's a broad, a broadly applicable point in low value care in the US. I think there is, you know, low value care also means poor adoption of really good interventions, but also many interventions now need to be de-implemented, right? And fortunately, I don't think we know a lot of that we've seen a lot of that in the mental and behavioral health space. We have a lot of things that work. We could use more interventions that work. So I, I will say that the bigger piece, I think, in mental behavioral health is really equity and access. And that's that, that's the bigger kind of challenge more than efficiency, which kind of makes my job easier in some ways to kind of make the case for, for some of these interventions. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, yeah, especially the access piece, even with like continuation of care and like the continuation of outpatient care for folks who have gone under rehabilitation, access and equity is a huge part in that. And that contributes to that low adaptation of um, the services. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this kind of really ties into a lot of, um, you know, health policy, bringing back to HIPSA. I mean, last example I'll give is I live in Texas now and Texas is one of a handful of states that still hasn't expanded Medicaid. And so our Medicaid is mostly children and pregnant women. And so if you're a poor adult who needs behavioral health services, you have to go to some county provider, um, you know, a, a behavioral health program, uh, if you can reach it, but you can't go, you can't, unless you have means to pay, you can't really seek uh, behavioral health care in a hospital or a, or a clinic next to you because um uh, you don't have insurance. And so, you know, all of this is kind of tied together. And um, unfortunately, in this, in my new home, um, we haven't done a good job of addressing some of the, the bigger issues that that prevent access and, and probably and likely perpetuate some inequities in mental health. So. All right. Well, thank you for this very insightful conversation. I hope our listeners took away as much as we did. And it was so great to speak with you again. Thanks for the invite. Really appreciate it.